Hey, welcome to another edition of Tips Takeaways. And this one is going to be on neurology. This will be neurology for the EMT students. So really, when we get into neurology, I guess the good and the bad is, is that it really is narrowed down into just a few areas. Uh, one is going to be stroke and then some other things we'll talk about. Maybe a little bit of altered mental status issues. Um, but really, we'll get into seizures. We'll get into stroke. By the way, did you know that stroke is the fifth leading cause of death and leading cause of adult disability in the United States? And this is all according to the American Stroke Association. At the time of this recording, uh, probably stroke is becoming more on the radar because of the recent death of a celebrity. Uh, by the name of Luke Perry. And really, a lot of people were like, hey, you know what? This is really for geriatric patients. And while it is common for geriatric patients, it is for people that are truly under the age of 60 that also run into problems with this as well. There are various contributing factors that we'll take a look at a little bit later on. And as science is evolving, we have the ability to understand that there are some newer treatments that are available for our stroke patients. As I said earlier, we're also going to talk more about seizures and it being one form of an altered mental status and one of the reasons why this will be one of our biggest issues with neurological emergencies. Now, when we talk about the brain, talk about the brain as being the body's computer. It is something that really controls our breathing, our speech, and all other bodily functions. Now, we look at three main parts or three big parts that are inside the brain. The brainstem, the cerebellum, and the cerebrum. Now, the cerebellum, or I'm sorry, the cerebrum got a little confused there, is the largest part, and it is divided into different areas. The brainstem now controls the basic functions and those functions in life. The cerebellum controls muscles and body coordination. There are 12 cranial nerves that run from the brain to different parts of the head. This is one way the messages are sent to and from the brain and they travel through these nerves. The rest of the nerves though join in that spinal cord and they exit through the brain through the foramen magnum. Each vertebrae in the neck and the back and all the way down there are two nerves that branch out from those spinal cords and they carry signals to and from the body. This would be more or less along the lines of the peripheral nervous system. You know, when we start talking about what kind of conditions somebody may have in relationship to neurological emergencies, one of the most common complaints that we hear is of a headache. And although a headache in and of itself probably is not going to be something that really requires a whole lot of medical treatment or uh, additional resources from us, but we do have to make sure that there is no other underlying condition that is presenting as a headache. So just to go back, 
a couple things that you want to remember is that attention headache. Usually those things, and I think a lot of us have had those, caused by some type of muscle contraction in the head, usually in the neck, and these things are usually attributed to stress, right? So the pain usually that you feel at this point is usually something that is squeezing, almost like a dull ache, and typically, you know, doesn't really require a whole lot of medical attention. Now, migraine headaches are thought really to be caused by changes in the blood vessel sizes at the brace of the, ba- of the brain. The pain's usually more pounding, throbbing, and more of those pulsating type feelings that they have. And these things have been known to go on for hours and days. Now, migraines, for the most part, are also associated with some type or accompanied by nausea, vomiting, and sometimes some folks will tell you that they may have a problem with their vision. They may also have a problem with uh, seeing maybe something like a flashing light. Another common headache that I think a lot of us have experienced is a sinus headache, where you get a lot of pressure because of some fluid that's actually inside the sinuses. Now, for the most part, these types of headaches that I just described are really benign and don't require a whole lot of treatment from our standpoint. However, we have to keep in mind that there are some serious conditions that we have to keep an eye on, such as hemorrhagic stroke or brain tumors and even potentially meningitis. So let's take a look at strokes. Strokes, or a formal name for strokes, are known as CVAs, or cerebrovascular accidents, is where there's an interruption in blood flow to a specific area of the brain. And as a result of that, there is usually some type or a loss of brain function. We look primarily at two different types of strokes. And really, that's what most books are going to tell you. I really do think, though, that we're now taking a look at there are essentially three. We'll look at ischemic, hemorrhagic, and a TIA, or a transient ischemic attack. So one of the things that we want to look at first would be what is going on with that ischemic stroke. This is pretty much the most common stroke that we're going to see. And a, or an ischemic stroke um, is usually the result of some type of blockage, either from a thrombosis or from an embolism. So let's take a look at those two things again. A thrombosis is where a clot was actually formed in that vessel itself. Where an embolism is a clot or some other type of foreign object that became dislodged somewhere else and has now become lodged inside that vessel in the brain. Now, these symptoms of folks that are having issues could range from really nothing at all to having complete paralysis. Now, atherosclerosis in the blood vessels is usually one of the most common causes as to why an individual would suffer from an ischemic stroke. We also have to keep in mind that this is why we want folks to make sure that they keep an eye 
on their blood pressure. And therefore, hypertension becomes one of those other things that we need to make sure that we take a look at. Now, the hemorrhagic strokes are ones that this is where I think a lot of people really become concerned with because hemorrhagic strokes are accounting maybe for about 10 to 15% of strokes. And when there is a cerebral hemorrhage, these things are usually fatal. And one of the most common causes of hemorrhagic strokes in really healthy young people is a berry aneurysm. Now, a berry aneurysm accounts for a large majority of the brain aneurysms that are, that are in existence. These are usually found at the brace of the brain, and they're called berry embolisms because they resemble a berry. Folks will describe this as being the worst headache of their life. And truly, it is one of those that comes on. It is very painful. And as if there is a bleed, it has a tendency to just get worse. Remember, blood freely bleeding or free blood inside the head is not a good thing. It's very irritating. So we go back then to take a look at TIAs right? Transient ischemic attacks. These are stroke-like symptoms, and that's actually one of the things that we're starting to realize now is that we're referring to conditions more of stroke-like symptoms. And these are usually the symptoms that then go away on their own in less than 24 hours from the event. This is why it's called transient, meaning that it occurred and it then went away. And it's ischemic because there's a lack of oxygen or a lack of perfusion to that area. Now, a TIA is usually a warning sign that there's a bigger stroke on its way. So it does need to be evaluated. And it does need to be a transport to the emergency department for further evaluation. TIAs really, as I said earlier, gives you that idea that a larger stroke is coming. So about a third of those patients will experience a stroke soon after. Now you could ask, well, hey, how soon after? Well, you know, I don't have a crystal ball. So I don't know or can't tell you based off of that information. But what we do know is, is that the more TIA someone has, the more likely that that stroke that they do have will be very bad. So what is a, or what are the signs and symptoms of stroke? So usually you're talking about facial droop. There may be weakness in one side of the body. It may be some numbness in their arm, face, maybe even in their leg. There may be a decreased movement or sensation on one part of the body. They have ataxia, which is a lack of muscle coordination. And they may also have a loss of balance. They may lose the vision in one eye. It may become blurred or they may see some double vision. They may have difficulty swallowing. So therefore, hint, hint, that usually means we may have a difficult time later on with controlling their airway. They can have a decrease or altered mental status or level of responsiveness. You may find some speech disorders where they either have difficulty expressing their words um, or using the correct words. They may have dysarthia, which is slurred speech, and they may even complain of headaches. 
It's not uncommon as well to have confusion, dizziness. They may become combative. Have them sticking out their tongue. You may be able to see that it deviates on one side versus the other. Now, a left hemisphere stroke is one that may cause aphasia or that ability to understand or produce some type of speech. And those that affect the left side of the brain can also cause some paralysis on the opposite side of the body. So if it occurs on the left, it can then cause paralysis on the right side of the body. If a stroke occurs in a right hemisphere, these strokes can cause paralysis of the left side of the body. They usually have the ability to understand what's going on and they're able to speak, but these are the folks that usually have the slurred speech. And these are the ones who are really hard to understand. Sometimes patients may really not even know what's going on. And as a result, this is what is called um, neglect or symptom neglect. So this may actually cause a delay in seeking some help. Now, if patients are having bleeding into the brain, you know, this may be um, as a result of very high blood pressure. It may also be the cause of the bleeding. And this also then may be a cause for a compensatory response um, of the brain to try and increase perfusion to that area. But it is one in which we have to make sure we check the patient out. We have to do a good assessment. Now there are conditions that may mimic strokes. One is hypoglycemia. So we're talking about a low blood sugar. Patients may have a post-ictal state, not post-dictal, post-ictal. Now these post-ictal states are typically what you're going to find when somebody has suffered a seizure. Ironically, that is our next area. And uh, another conditions or other conditions that we can take a look at include subdural or epidural bleeding that is occurring inside the head. Now, one of our next areas that we want to take a look at is seizures. Now, I have been involved in many seizure calls. I have friends that remark to me that this is their worst feeling in the world of seeing people seize. But the reality is that it is a common um, thing that can happen, I guess is the best way to put it. And in the United States, about 3 million people actually suffer or have epilepsy. But a seizure is primarily a neurological episode where there's been this surge of electrical activity that's occurring inside the brain. And we see this as an outward sign with tonic-clonic movement, oftentimes. If they have that tonic-clonic movement, this is something that we would call a generalized seizure. And this is usually from that abnormal electrical discharge that occurs from very large areas of the brain. And at this time, it usually involves both hemispheres, both the right and the left. These folks usually become unconscious and they have generalized severe twitching all over. 
And these things can last, or this twitching can last for several minutes or even longer. Now, another type of seizure that you may hear people refer to is an absent seizure. And this is a seizure that does not involve any type of motor activity. These are where people have a brief lapse of consciousness in which that person seems to stare off and are not really responding. You know, like many students do while they're in school. They kind of daydream. No, you're probably not having an absent seizure, but that often is how these become identified. And this is usually in school. Now, another type of seizure is a partial seizure or a focal seizure. Now, we break these down. Really, we can break them down into really two areas for us. A simple partial seizure is where there's no um, change in the patient's level of consciousness. They may have some numbness and weakness or some visual changes. They may complain of some unusual smells or tastes. And this may also be at times accompanied by some brief twitching or maybe some brief paralysis. Now, a complex partial seizure is where the patient has an altered mental status and they don't interact normally with their environment. This is usually a result of some abnormal discharges from the temporal lobe of the brain. You may identify lip smacking, a lot of eye blinking, or they may have isolated jerking. Patients usually experience these unpleasant smells or hallucinations. They may have uncontrollable fear or they have repetitive physical behavior. Now, one of the things that I think a lot of people may recall or a lot of people see is that patients may experience an aura. And an aura occurs prior to a seizure. This is usually something that may be a smell. It may be a sound. It may be a different feeling that they have that is indicating that they're probably going to suffer a seizure. And it may give them enough time to really go somewhere and make sure that they're not going to cause a problem and hurt themselves. Generalized seizures, as we talked about earlier, are characterized by a lot of sudden loss of consciousness and then that chaotic muscle movement. Most of those seizures, as we said earlier, they last about three to five minutes, or they could be longer, and they're usually followed by a postictal state. These postictal states are usually where the individual is what a lot of people may refer to as the lights are on, but nobody's home. Where that individual may not have a complete awareness of what happened. They're not sure. Remember that during that seizure, once it has stopped, everything has to reset. So they're trying to figure out what the heck is going on. With absent seizures, those are, again, those petite mall type seizures. These can last for a few seconds, and the patient usually fully recovers without a problem. So they really don't have a significant postictal state. Status epilepticus is going to be defined 
as a seizure that continues every few minutes without the person regaining, con regaining consciousness. Or people who have seized for longer than 30 minutes. Now, seizures are caused by several issues, could be caused by several issues. This could be congenital. It can be born with it. This could be something that is more structural, where here we're talking about an individual who may have a tumor. This could be metabolic. Metabolic meaning that we may be dealing with people who are hypoxic. We may be dealing with people who have a low blood sugar. It may also be febrile, and febrile means that they have a fever. Now, epileptic seizures most likely can be controlled with medication. All right, so uh, I'm just going to give you a quick disclaimer right here, right? So uh, I obviously record these at different times, and you know, you're going to notice that probably for about the next 10 minutes or 15, I forget what it actually is, but you're going to notice there's going to be a difference in the sound. Well, that was my bad. I actually uh, was screwing around with some microphone settings, and it turns out that I forgot to turn on the real one. Um, so it's going to be a little bit muffled here and there, but I truly apologize for that, and I was just a little bit too lazy to go back and redo it. So, uh, hey, thanks for your understanding, and enjoy the rest of the uh, Tim's Takeaway. You know. When we see an individual who may be suffering from a seizure, it becomes important that, first off, you recognize that they are having a seizure. And if they have a witness, if there's a witness, a family member, a bystander that is familiar with this individual, it becomes important to try and identify whether or not this episode of the seizure is different than previous ones. It gives you an idea as to whether or not there may be something else ongoing. Now, as we described a little bit earlier, that post-sictal state is where the patient is going to regain or their muscles are relaxing and they're starting to try and come back to normal. And this may also be one of those times in which you notice that their breathing becomes lethargic. So one of the things that I would point out to you is that one of the biggest complications that we have with individuals who seize is the fact that they may stop breathing. It is not about the medication, although it could be. It is about, and by the way, when I refer to it's not about the medication, what I'm referring to here is the medication that typically is given by a ALS provider in the field. It may be given as a emergency medication from the family. But what, and by the way, those would be things such as Valium, Midazolam, we hear also referred to as Versed. And those are medications that may cause as a side effect a decrease in their respiratory rate. But it is actually the seizure that can potentially cause more of the problem and cause people to stop breathing. You will also notice that folks that may have conditions that um, improve quickly and you don't see that they go through a post state, maybe individuals who have had an infection or 
they may have some type of hypoglycemia or a low blood sugar that has potentially caused the problem. Syncope is oftentimes um, what people refer to, obviously, when people pass out. But seizures oftentimes are mistaken for an individual who has had syncope. So as a newer EMS provider, it's not going to be an uncommon thing that you get called for a seizure call and find something else. It's not an uncommon thing to be called for syncope and find out that they have a seizure. And by the way, with kids, it's not uncommon to get called for a cardiac arrest and find out that it has actually been a febrile seizure. Some of those other things that we take a look at for neurological issues include altered mental status. You know, if you take stroke and seizures out of the, the phenomenon or out of the neurological issues, here you are left with altered mental status. There's something that is causing them to have an altered mental status. Now, most of your books are going to identify a whole bunch of different issues. And I'm going to give you two things that you can try to remember as a mnemonic. You can remember AEIOU tips, which is probably one of the most common things that I've seen in textbooks today. But the A stands for alcohol or acidosis. The E stands for endocrine, epilepsy, electrolytes, encephalopathy. The I stands for insulin. The O stands for opiates or overdose. Remember, there are other overdoses besides opiate. The U is uremia or underdose. The T is for trauma, such as the trauma from a head injury, or maybe they have had significant blood loss, and this has caused them to go into potentially hypovolemic shock. The I could be infections such as meningitis, maybe encephalitis, sepsis. You could be looking at the septic shock, maybe a pneumonia, urinary tract infection. The P stands for poisoning or psychosis or pharmacy. Finally, the S is dealing with stroke seizure, and syncope. So you can see you can kind of put a lot of these things as to what the causes may be into a nice little mnemonic name known as AEIOU tips. One of the other things that I would take a look at, or another mnemonic that you could take a look at, would be called SNOT. Yes, S-N-O-T, just like you sneeze it and blow it out of your nose. The S has stroke, seizure, and sugar. The N is dealing with narcotics. The O is dealing with oxygen. And the T is dealing with trauma, toxins, and then telemetry, which is essentially EKG. You know, when you take a look at a lot of these, you try to end up rolling them out. Sugar is probably one of the biggest areas that we can potentially roll out. And that would be just as simple as 
taking on a blood glucose. Let's find out about what their blood sugar is. But hypoglycemia can have signs and symptoms that truly mimic not only strokes, but also seizures. Delirium, on the other hand, is something where, you know, it's, it's a symptom. It's not really a disease. There's something that is underlying. You will hear a popular terminology today of being acute delirium. But really, this is something that is relatively new. It's not long-standing, but it's something that has happened recently. So if you want to think about it this way, you will hear people say, oh, they're just demented. Well, dementia is something different. Dementia in and of itself is more of a slow onset. So this could be something that maybe is weeks, months, maybe even years until they reach a point where just not sure what's happening. There are other issues, of course, for altered mental status. We talked a, a bunch about, you know, could it be a head injury? Could it be the alcohol with intoxication? But don't forget that infection becomes one of those big things that we have to take a look at. Sepsis is very popular today in the medical world, and rightfully so. When you account for the number of people who die from sepsis, it accounts for more people than all cancers combined. So we go back and take a look at let's how, how we're going to assess these folks. Just some highlights, right? I, I think at this point, I hope at this point, that you have a better understanding of what it is that you need to do for an assessment. But some highlights that you might want to take a look at include blood pressure. Because oftentimes if the blood pressure is higher, it may be there to try to compensate for poor perfusion that's going on in the brain. You may need to do a stroke assessment. One of our most common ones that we take a look at is the Cincinnati Pre-Hospital Stroke Scale, otherwise known as the FAST mnemonic. So let's take a brief look at that, shall we? So the Cincinnati Pre-Hospital Stroke Scale looks at three areas. It looks at facial droop, it looks at arm drift, and it looks at slurred speech. So what you need to do is have the individual smile so that you can see their teeth. Here you're looking for the facial symmetry. Next, you're going to want to have them hold their hands out, palms up. You're going to put them about to shoulder level and you're going to have them close their eyes. You're going to then count to about 10 and see what their arms do. If they come down together, great, that's probably okay. If however one comes down and the other one kind of stays up, that then is going to be considered to be an arm drift and that is an abnormality. Our last one is going to be have them Repeat a phrase, such as, you can't teach an old dog new tricks, pretty common one. And if they can repeat it back to you without slurring their words, fantastic. My experience has been, every time I use that phrase, they will say, oh, well, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. 
and then we all have a good laugh. But I also must make you aware that while we have a good laugh about that, it also potentially gives me the idea that this is now going to be a normal stroke scale, we hope. By the way, if they are positive in any one of those three areas, you're looking at about a 72% chance that the patient is suffering from a stroke. You may also be able to applaud your telecommunicators, your dispatchers, because in progressive dispatch centers, the call taker will actually ask someone who is there, potentially, to actually help perform that stroke scale. The fast mnemonic is the same exact thing. It looks at facial droop, arm drift, slurred speech, and the only thing that we add in here is time. And we want to make sure that we can look at a time frame as to how long that individual has actually been experiencing these signs and symptoms. Finally, one of the last things that you want to take a look at for anybody who is having an altered mental status is to measure their Glasgow Coma Scale score about every five minutes or so. The rationale for this is that when you see a progression of two points or more, it's good. If you see a decline of two points or less, then we're going to have a problem. By the way, if you're stuck on what the GCS is, go back and take a look at one of my previous Tim's takeaways on the GCS itself. And I also have links on my webpage at timr2715.com to be able to show you some additional YouTube videos that I have found to be useful. So how are we going to care for these folks? Well, if you're suspecting a stroke, we need to make early notification to the hospital. We need to make sure that we're notifying the emergency department. And when the patient arrives, they're going to be sent, well, let me back up. Before that patient arrives, you need to make sure that you're sending them to definitive care. And what do I mean by that? Well, definitive care means that I'm sending them to the proper hospital. I'm sending them to a stroke center. Now, in today's day and age, this is 2019 at the time of this recording, and interventional stroke centers are popping up a lot. This means that not everybody needs to go there, but you need to follow your local protocol. If a patient arrives or when that patient arrives, early notification is of utmost importance. Um, we need to make sure that we are protecting their airway, that we maintain it, make sure that it's clear, have suctioning available, provide oxygen if it is warranted, so we want to take a look at what our patient is experiencing. And we also want to make sure that if they have a pulse oximeter reading, that it is greater than 94%, fantastic, no need to give them their oxygen right now. However, if it is less than 94%, then we really want to take a look at that. By the way, keep in mind, there is going to be a lag and what is real inside the body 
versus what is happening with the pulse ox. Okay, sounds like another episode or some references are going to need to be brought up with that a little bit later on. So anyway, when you get the patient to the hospital, um, if you're suspecting that they have trauma, obviously we need to make sure that they are immobilized the proper way. This may just be a cervical collar, um, spinal motion restriction. When you notify the hospital, they're going to need to get a CT scan done um, within a, at least a 25-minute time frame. Patients that are complaining of a headache um, really should be concerned if they're complaining of a sudden onset of severe headache, or they have a headache with a fever, maybe a seizure, or they have altered mental status, and particularly individuals that have had an altered mental status and a headache following trauma. And if we have an individual who is suffering from a migraine, these also are folks that we really need to make sure that we try to make them comfortable and transport them appropriately. Now, I had mentioned earlier about those stroke patients, and just let me bring that back, yet, back around again, is that the thrombolytic therapy or the clot-busting drugs that they're going to be given those are really going to be given usually within a three-hour time frame. Now, again, in 2015, the American Heart Association had identified that there are a select group of patients that may have that window of time extended. But our ultimate goal in EMS right now is three hours. If the patient is in a, having a seizure, if they are actively seizing, you need to make sure that they are being protected, that you are protecting them from the environment so they do not get hurt. If they are in a postictal state, we need to worry about their airway breathing and reassess them quite frequently. Finally, for those altered mental status patients, you know, as we're seeing things change, um, EMTs are now more likely going to be doing blood glucose levels. And again, the um, at 2019, this is being broadcast or I'm making this podcast on April in April of 2019. And we're in a verge of change. So right now, um, from a national standpoint, the use of a glucometer at the EMT level is not approved. However, the current scope of practice that has just been released in this past year, within the past two months, actually does recommend the use of a blood glucometer, blood glucose reading for EMTs. And by the way, many states have already adopted that. Anyway, I think that pretty much does it for neurology. So I would hope that uh, you stick around for some more of Tim's takeaways and hope this was helpful. And hey, guess what? We'll talk to you later. See you.